Worlds apart. We see the same sun rise and fall, the same river flow by, but yet worlds apart. The musical this song is drawn from Big River tells the story of Huck Finn and Jim. Mark Twain's fictional account of the voyage of Huck, a 13-year-old boy struggling with being told that slavery was right, but seeing the humanity of Jim, Jim, who's feeling the torture and the violence and the terror of enslavement and longing for freedom, Huck is naive and unaware. He begins to understand he doesn't get all the way there. Indeed, Twain doesn't get all the way there. His stereotypes about Jim are unfortunate. But they get far enough to realize that they are world apart, that though both are human and share the world together, their experiences and how others perceive them means they move in this world in fundamentally different ways. When Huck recognizes this, his own story about his own life begins to shift. He sees himself differently. A hundred years after Huck Finn was written and 160 years after the Civil War ended the enslavement of African Americans by law, if not completely in fact, a lot of folks are, it seems, still worlds apart. Here's an example. There are numbers this morning. This is from a survey of Americans about whether the government should pay caste reparations to the descendants of enslaved Africans. So if you can't see the numbers up there, should, make, should we make cash payments? Non-Hispanic white folks, 16% said yes, 81% said no. Non-Hispanic black folks, 73% said yes, 25% said no. Worlds apart. If I were to be asked this question five or so years ago, I would have been in that 16%. Yes, we should, but I, I hadn't thought about it that seriously, to be honest. I didn't think it was likely to happen. And I was working on things like educating other white folks about race and microaggressions and those things which are important about changing the current ongoing dynamics. And working on things like discrimination in public education and criminal justice, which happen to this day. They are not historic artifacts, but present realities. So though I would have answered should in that 16%, I would not have made it a priority. I didn't understand the importance of it. That changed when I read Tanahasi Coates' essay. For 20 years, I've been reading and attending deeply to questions of racial justice, my commitment to Unitarian Universalist principles, the conversations of my colleagues, and engagement through my seminary and professional association has led me to taking this seriously for a long time. I consider myself pretty well informed, the true history of this country and the real facts, and yet when I read Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Case for Reparations some years ago, I was surprised again by the recency of the theft of black wealth by white power. If you've read the essay, and it's free to read online at the Atlantic Magazine website, so you can all go read it, refresh your memory, read it for the first time, you know that it doesn't actually focus on slavery that much at all, but on the theft of black property wealth post the Second World War in Chicago and other northern cities. Those whose homes were literally stolen through redlining and mortgage fraud and theft are still alive today. And yes, if you're wondering, this happened in Rockford, Illinois, 
When black families built up wealth, banks would suddenly call in the loan prematurely before they could pay it back. Real estate agents would refuse to show homes, and when too many black families moved into a neighborhood, that neighborhood would be abandoned, and the wealth they had poured into the home would evaporate. No city services except the police would show up. That was this town and the living memory of people alive. Documented, first-person narratives, bank and real estate records, it's all written down. This isn't an argument, these are facts. There are articles in the Morning Star. Ta-Nehisi Coates' argument is not that cash payments solve this. They don't end the ongoing discrimination, the combination of disinvestment and gentrification happening across this country. They don't fix the way that black families were left out of the post-war boom and wealth creation or the way they were targeted pre-2008 and still today by mortgage companies, and they surely do not repair the intergenerational trauma of slavery, a campaign of absolute terror, family separation, and torture. Cash payments don't fix that. Though, as Tanasi Coates would say, the money would not be bad. It's actually the national conversation the accountability, the truth in history telling that could, that could lead to some healing, to some justice. A national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal, he says. What we know is that this will be the most difficult work we can imagine. People's reactivity to this topic is super high. Witness the reaction to the 619 Project in the New York Times Magazine, which told the story of America from the point of view of enslaved Africans and their descendants. How dare you, people said. Don't talk about our family history like that. That's what they really meant. You must be mistaken about what you experienced. The gaslighting was extraordinary. This is a conversation that produces reactivity. You may yourself be feeling nervous about this because the concept of reparation involves the question of guilt. And guilt is not something a lot of us do well. Guilt means we're bad, we think, and shameful, and no one likes to feel that way. Liberal middle-class white folks especially don't like to feel that way. Not everyone in this room is a liberal middle-class white person, but some of us are, and this is not a conversation that we are trained to handle very well. It's a conversation that makes folks nervous, actually, no matter their race, because race is hard to talk about. And some of us would rather not, for our own safety, for folks of color often don't want to talk about this because it's dangerous to have this conversation. So I'm going to put my white privilege to work, and I'm going to talk about it, because it's easier for me, in this skin and in my profession, to risk this conversation with you all. And if you agree with me about this, or if I convince you this morning and you have the capacity to spread the word in the world, I hope that you will, because the aim here is the conversation. Because if we want that spiritual renewal that comes with honesty, and if we value justice and healing, then this is a place, this conversation is a place I am increasingly convinced we must go. Without talking about reparations, we cannot get real about where we have been and where we must go. So, let's start with some facts. Are you ready? How much is owed? I'll say, ta Coates' essay is mostly about post-war real estate discrimination. 
Uh, but I'm going to talk this morning about reparations for slavery. There are other reparations that need to be made for other things and to other folks. But I'm going to focus on that. If you take the value of the slave trade in 1800, and there are receipts. It's all documented. The purchases of human beings recorded in ledgers, insured against loss by insurance companies still in business today. If you apply 6% compounding interest, it comes close to $17 trillion, more or less. Now, that's one calculation. Another popular calculation that a lot of historians use, if you take the average wage for labor work done at that time, the hours worked by enslaved Africans without compensation, and you estimate 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and inflation adjusts those numbers, you get $5.9 trillion. That's what that number is, $5.9 trillion, adjusted for inflation. That, by the way, over a 10-year period is less than the 10-year cost of the United States military. Just to put things in perspective, what kind of number are we talking about? It's about twice the cost over a 10-year period of the most recent tax cut passed by the Congress. It's equal to the wealth of 96 Mike Bloombergs. Okay? Okay. So it is a large number, but it is not an unthinkable number. It comes out to about $160,000 for each black household in the United States, more or less. It's complicated. Some folks, their family was never enslaved. They're immigrants from Africa or the Caribbean after slavery was ended. But we're estimating here. It's about $159,000 per family. Here's an interesting fact. The wealth gap between the average black household and white household in the United States is $143,000. I don't think that's a coincidence, I'm just saying. Now the next question you might ask is who pays? This comes up a lot, and you might say as people do, my ancestors didn't own slaves, why should I pay? That's guilt, that worry about shame, it comes right through us, doesn't it? This is a spiritual question. It's a question about collective, responsibility and inheritance and wealth and whether we are autonomous individuals or if we are bound together in an inescapable network of mutuality. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Who pays? The federal government of the United States pays. Everyone through their taxes pitch it in. You pay a lot of taxes, you pay more. You pay less taxes, you pay less. Why? The federal government, because it is the country as a whole that did this thing that wrote it into its constitution, that grew rich because of the stolen labor. And it's the federal government, which from 1776 to 1861, permitted the theft and abuse of its own citizens and profited from it. And if we are part of this country, if we want to claim the benefits of it, if we are part of its story, its future, and its present, if we move on its land, vote in its elections, learn at its schools, live in its borders, and cheer on its teams, then we all owe everyone together. Here's an analogy. Downtown Rockford is going to get a beautiful new library. ComEd is paying for it. Why is ComEd paying for the library? Because they bought a company that bought a company that ran a factory on that land that polluted the soil. And even though it was ComEd, wasn't ComEd that did that, per se, they got the advantage of the wealth of the companies they bought, and so they're responsible to clean up the land the pollution on which happened 120 years ago. It's their job. So they paid for the old library to come down, cleaning the soil, and they'll pay for the new building. 
It's going to be beautiful with glass and all these kind of things. It's going to be great. My kids are excited. Except, of course, ComEd won't pay for it because they don't actually exist. Not really. It's just ones and zeros in a computer. It's customers who buy electricity, who pay the bills. So it's customers who will pay to clean it up, which is, unless you've gotten off the grid, almost all of us. Nonetheless, the company must pay. And so a tiny portion of our bills will go for this and for similar cleanups all over the country. This is how collective responsibility works. We benefit from having heat and lights and power, and so we pay to clean up the mess. It's an imperfect analogy in a lot of ways. I don't want to lean on it too hard, but what I hope it makes clear is that you don't have to be guilty to be responsible. Guilt and responsibility are different things. I did not spill fuel oil and tanning chemicals into that land. I'm not guilty of that. But I, not alone by myself, but I with others, with the whole collective, am responsible. It's collective, not individual. In this pulpit, I have preached against individualism many times. The notion that we are self-sufficient, everything unto ourselves, is wrong. It's wrong emotionally, it's wrong neurobiologically, it's wrong spiritually, and it's wrong when it comes to justice and healing, too. Whether we're talking about climate change or peace or anti-racism, of course there is individual responsibility. There's a need for each of us in our own lives to take action and educate ourselves and do the right thing in our own personal choices, yes. But if we make any of those only about our individual action, then we let society as a whole off the hook and reinforce the very dynamic of false individualism that is literally killing us. Loneliness kills more people than smoking every year. So it's the federal government that should pay $5.9 trillion, pay it over 10 years, pay and pay through it through a wealth tax or a financial transaction tax or a tax on insurance companies. It's not like the value of the slave trade didn't get passed through those books all those years ago. But the third and most important question is this, why? Why should the government of the United States compensate the descendants of those whose lives, children, labor, and freedom were stolen to build the wealth of the United States. If that question doesn't answer itself, then I think we must turn to the spiritual question, the inside of Deuteronomy and many of the world's spiritual traditions that you do not send out without resources. The notion of a jubilee year is related here, that debts be balanced. Some things will need to be forgiven so that a new start can be made. Some things will need to be paid so a new start can be made. A debt is owed. The country owes a debt it has not paid. And a new beginning, the spiritual renewal longed for, cannot begin until the debt is paid. Paying the debt is not sufficient. And truthfully, if I were to give the counter case to the case for reparations, it would be this, that thinking the country can pay off the debt only with money and no change to action and no change to the conversation would be too easy and out. It's not a bribe. It is not sufficient, but it may be necessary. What needs to go with it to make it work is the reckoning, the emotional conversation, the grappling with the truth that we have been worlds apart, 
And without learning the true history, without grappling the with the larger truth, without crossing the river, no amount of cash is enough. But given the reality of how things are, we don't get to that cash to paying the debt without the emotional conversation. And it may be a pathway to that spiritual renewal that we need. The work of moving from guilt to responsibility, from denial to truth, from scarcity to generosity, from fear to hope, from history to the future. The land to which we are bound can be a land where everyone, everyone, can live in freedom and peace and joy. It can be, but getting real about what has been, being honest about it, will be necessary so that we can all go to that land together. The spiritual renewal our country needs, desperately needs, happens when we engage the spiritual conversation about human dignity, responsibility, and what we owe to one another as part of one people. Finally, building the land of our dreams. Reparations may be a necessary but insufficient condition of the larger journey toward repair, honesty, and justice, and the beauty of a world that is not apart, but one world for all people. May it be so. May we make it so. Let's rise and body or spirit. We'll sing together. Come and go with me. <laughs>